This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Would you join me in Matthew's Gospel, the very first chapter, Matthew chapter 1. I mentioned a short while ago the movies, theaters, have mastered creating backdrops, backgrounds that make you think you're seeing something that is often really not there. In early films, the backdrop of a movie set often distracted from what was happening with the characters in a story. I like watching old westerns. Uh, but sometimes they can get on your nerves because they're riding a stagecoach and what's happening in the background isn't where that stagecoach is, right? Yeah, it's just, my dad used to tell us as a boy, he remembers watching a Western and, and uh, the cowboys and the Indians were, were fighting it out and, and if you look closely in the background, there was a highway with cars going back and forth and he, he, he always remembered that. I love... Christmas movies, and there are some classics, right? Uh, and so I hope I don't ruin it for you this morning, but, but for sake of illustration, many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life. In many of those early movies that required falling snow, it wasn't, in fact, falling snow. I learned something as I studied for the message. Do you know that a lot of that was... Bleached cornflakes. <laughs> but they had to quit using bleached cornflakes because when the characters walked around, it crunched. Not like snow, it crunched like cornflakes. And so they changed what was falling. And in fact, this is what was used in It's a Wonderful Life. A mixture of fomite is the substance they put in fire extinguishers with snowflakes uh, or I'm sorry, soap flakes, all right, fomite, soap flakes, water, and sugar. And, and they put fans in places so when the, the soap flakes were falling, it just blow that all over and you had your winter scene. And this also allowed for a quiet snowfall while George Bailey learned that his life of giving to others wasn't all for naught. All right, so when you watch it next time, pretend it's really snow, okay? They're, they're really cold. Now, fiction and fairy tales have their place. They, they do, and so please don't think I'm being too negative today. God gave you a mind to be able to sort things out. But would you agree with me that St. Nick, flying reindeer, snowmen that come to life because they find a magic hat, elf toy makers, and I'm being careful, but even the idea that that same night that our Lord was born, three wise men, just three, shepherds, and who invited the drummer boy? <laughs> the baby needs to sleep, all right? that they all converged on a stable in Bethlehem as angels hovered overhead. Again, I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be negative. 
But all that creates a backdrop that can distort what the true backdrop of Christmas was. So today I want to begin a series that will take us up to, well, actually through Christmas and allow inspired scripture to show us what the true backdrop of Christmas was. And that's the title of our message, or our series. Now, as we follow the true Christmas story, two key parts form the backdrop that really happened. Here's the first part. Do you know that in the Christmas story, the genealogies in the Gospels become vitally important? The genealogies and then Gabriel's appearance to Zacharias, the priest, form a background of grace. My heart rejoiced when the Browns got up this morning and, and talked about Christmas and the message of grace. But grace is a critical, critical background. And then Gabriel's appearances to Mary and Joseph form a background of faith. So consider this. Grace and faith are the essential elements that God used to bring his gift, Jesus the Messiah, to this earth. And they're the same elements that you and I must understand are part of our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's the gift of God not of works not of any religious works lest any man should boast God graciously provided his son for us and in these events that we're going to consider together God's grace was evident and then he called on some humble servants to participate in that Christmas story and that required essential faith by grace enablement, the Holy Spirit draws us to faith in the Lord Jesus without religious works. And yes, God showed his grace through the participants in the Christmas story. He used their faith. But the whole point of the Christmas story is a singular figure, God's Son given to be the Savior of the human race. And there is no salvation in any other. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now I share this because religion has even distorted the true backdrop of Christmas. Now let me illustrate. And I want you to understand this morning, and I don't, I don't know who all of our guests are. Uh, we love those who are in other religions. In fact, these pictures around the outside of the auditorium are missionaries that we support who are in places that are very religious, but they're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love people in those areas. However, uh, we are very concerned and we stand opposed to anything that teaches Jesus isn't enough or that it's Jesus plus something else. Uh, we had an evangelist here a while back who uh, shared a helpful illustration. He put two chairs up here, and, and he, he said that the one chair represented Christ, the other chair represented religion, and he sat between those chairs. Now, he was exercising faith in both of those chairs, but the problem was instead of choosing one or the other, he sat in between illustrating that a split faith uh, split trust is mistrust. Okay, I, I'm glad Jesus came, but you know, I, I got to make sure that I cover all my bases. No, he's it. 
He alone provided salvation because he is the sinless son of God. No other man could provide salvation and pay for our sin. Only the God-man who was born of a virgin and didn't have a sin nature. All man, all God. And so let me share this illustration. Not far from where I was raised in Illinois is a town called St. Anne. In fact, earlier this year, I was at a family reunion in Kankakee. It's Kankakee County, and St. Anne is there. Now it's just a small village, but years ago, thousands lived in that town. It was settled in 1851 by French Canadians who followed their priest, Charles Quinnecke, from Quebec to establish a Catholic colony uh, in the plains of Illinois. Amazing testimony. Quinnecke had already been at odds with church hierarchy because he encouraged his parishioners to read and interpret the Bible for themselves. You can read this history. He distributed Bibles and he says, you believe what it says. Well, that put him at odds with church hierarchy. On a Saturday night while studying the scriptures for himself, priest Quinnickly believed the gospel and was gloriously saved. The next morning he stood before his congregation and here's what he said. It is time for me to go away from you, my friends. I have left the Roman Catholic Church forever. I have given the gift, I have taken the gift of Christ but I respect you too much to impose myself on you. And by the way, Christians don't impose themselves on others. We simply share Christ. He went on, if you think it is better for you to follow the Pope than to follow Christ and to invoke the name of Mary than the name of Jesus in order to be saved, tell it to me by rising up. In other words, stand and vote. Then he went on, the mighty God who saved me yesterday can save you today. With me, you uh, will cross the Red Sea and go into the promised land. With me, you will accept the great gift, and you will be happy and rich in the gift. I will put the question to you in another way. If you think it is better for you to follow Christ than the Pope, to invoke the name of Jesus alone than the name of Mary, that it is better to put your trust only in the blood of the Lamb shed on the cross for your sins than in the fabled purgatory of Rome after your death to be saved. If you think it is better for you to have me preach to you the pure gospel of Christ than to have a priest preach to you the doctrines of Rome, tell it to me by rising up and I am your man. In other words, if you want to trust Christ alone, stand. That's what he was saying. Now again, this, this comes from his own memoirs. I'm not making this up. Quinnicky re related what happened next. He said, quote, All without a single exception rose to their feet and with tears asked me to remain with them. The gift, the great unspeakable gift had for the first time come before their eyes in its, in its beauty. They had found it precious. They had accepted it. And no words can tell you the joy of that multitude. Like myself, they felt rich and happy in the gift. The names of 1,000 souls, I believe, were written in the book of life that day. 
Some months later, we were 2,000 converts. A year later, we were about 4,000. And now we are nearly 25,000 who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, did you catch what happened? No doubt, every one of these congregants knew the Christmas story. Certainly they did. But grace brought them to saving faith in the gift of salvation through God's Son. And so this morning, let's look in this first message at the Christmas backdrop of grace. And let's see that God's grace was manifested long before we even get to the Gospels. The backdrop of grace that brought about our salvation began long before the Christmas story, and it came to us through two genealogies. You're in Matthew chapter 1. Would you look at verses 1 to 17? And if you read that, you'll see that so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, all right? The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what happens in the genealogy, it starts with Abraham, the father of Israel, and takes the genealogy all the way through Joseph, who was the stepfather, not the real father, the earthly father, stepfather of the Lord Jesus. And so let's consider the genealogy of Joseph's line. In this genealogy, 41 names are listed. The family line, again, Abraham through Solomon right up to Jesus and through stepfather Joseph. What is interesting about this genealogy is that it contains the names of four women. Harold Wilmington points out that Oriental and Mideastern genealogies rarely even mention women. A further importance is the fact that these women all had stained reputations in the minds of an Orthodox Jew. You certainly would not expect them to be in the family line of Messiah. Yeshua. No. And so, who are these? Well, look at verse 3. Judas... Judah begat Perez and Zara through Tamar. Now these you're looking at Greek pronunciations, but Tamar. Okay, who was Tamar? Well, if you go back to Genesis 38, she was a woman who had been jilted, had not been uh, taken care of uh, by her. Uh, she had married into uh, the family of Judah. Uh, he was under obligation, even with Oriental culture, uh, to give another son to this woman because her husband had died. Uh, Judah had promised that, but then he didn't follow through. You'll find all that in Genesis 38. And so she plays the harlot. She, she makes herself a prostitute and has relations with the man who was her father-in-law. From that are born Perez and Zara. Okay? But if you follow that line, all right, she's part of the lineage that leads to Messiah. 
And then there's another woman. You'll find her uh, in verse 5, the first part of the verse. And Solomon, or, or I'm sorry, Salmon begat Booz, again, Boaz of Rechab. All right. And uh, Booz begat Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse. So who is uh, Rechab? That's actually Rahab. She was the Canaanite harlot that lived in Jericho. She is the heroine of Joshua 2 that hid the Joshua's spies in her home. She puts her faith in God after God saves her life, her family, when the walls of Jericho come down. And she is later wed to one of the spies a great-grandson of Judah by the name of Salmon. All right, so now we've seen Tamar. Here's Rahab, but we need to move on. Look at the second half of verse 5. Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Okay, well, Ruth had been raised a pagan in Moab. Ruth 1.4 introduces us to this woman who married the son of a backslidden Israelite. Uh, when there's a famine in Bethlehem, and that's a hint too, right? What, what was happening in Bethlehem? That's where Judah, this is where the tribe was from. He leaves Bethlehem. He goes down across the Jordan uh, Rift Valley and up into Moab, and that's where he's going to live because, well, practically this is, there's just food there. Never mind that my sons won't have anyone to marry and will be surrounded by false religion. Never mind any of that. I just, I just think this is what's best. And so Ruth returns to Judah after her husband dies with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and by God's miraculous leading, marries the godly man, Boaz. Of course, Boaz was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Now drop down to verse 6, the second half of the verse. Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias, or Uriah. All right, so who's the next woman? Who's the fourth woman here? Bathsheba. She was involved in adultery with King David. 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5, relate for us one of the darkest events in Israel's history. The man after God's own heart isn't where he should be. He should be off fighting Israel's enemies, but he's not. He's lounging in the palace, falls into temptation, and commits adultery with the wife of one of his mighty men. Remember King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table? All right. Well, there really was a king who was, was surrounded by mighty warriors, and the Bible lists his mighty men. Uh, you'd want any one of these guys to be your bodyguards. Okay? One of those guys was Uriah, and while he's off being loyal to his king and fighting for the nation, the king cheats on his wives and takes Uriah's wife. Now, these women's lives reveal God's grace. And, and there isn't a saved person here that's thinking clearly that looks at this list and says, well, I'm better than any of that. No, we're not. 
We're all sinners who needed to be saved by Jesus Christ. But God's grace in taking these pagan and sinful women who exercise faith in Jehovah and he puts them in the line of our Savior. By the way, it was all on purpose. This was the plan. Now, with all this sin, you could assume the plan of God would be corrupted and fail. And yet God's grace can take prostitutes and pagans, bring them into his family, the family of God, turn them to him, and fulfill his redemptive plan. Now that's the backdrop, part of the backdrop of Christmas. I remember one day I was out knocking on doors and trying to share Christ uh, with people. And, and uh, let me just chat with you teens for a moment. I was your age when I was doing this. And our youth pastor had assigned me to one of the uh, older godly soul winners in our church. And so I was the one that got to stand and listen while he knocked and talked. And I'll never forget, I remember right off of which street we were at in Rockford, Illinois, when we knocked on a door and this character came to the door. And when he found out who we were, uh, where we were from, he lit into us. And do you know what he did? He knew enough of his Bible, he started to recount this history. Well, your Jesus is. And he started talking about these people. Now, I'm a teenager, and I'm glad I didn't get to see my face at the time. I'm like, wow. I didn't even know what some of the things he was talking about. But the godly soul winner did. And he said to the man, I'm so glad you brought this up. And he began to talk about the grace of God. And all these women had turned to the Lord and were accepted. And God used them. By the way, I don't know about you, I can't wait to get to heaven and meet these ladies. Wow. But we have a problem. And here's the problem. Even though this is all true, throughout the Old Testament, Satan was using sin and failure in Israel to try and stop God's plan. He wanted to stop the Christmas story. He didn't want Messiah to come to earth. He knew that the line leading to Christ would come from David. However, the rebellion of David's kings, his sons, his grandsons, brought the line to a place where it was just awful. If you've read your Bible, believers, if you've read your Bible and you read about the kings of Judah, oh my. I've heard people groan here, okay? When I say names like Manasseh, okay, it, it was really, really bad. How awful uh, those men turned. And it got so bad that the rebellion of these kings led to God cursing one of those kings named Jeconiah. He's also called Kaniah. But now with this curse, there is a problem because God said Messiah would come through David's line. Listen to Jeremiah 22 and verse 30. Thus saith the Lord, write this man childless. 
a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. That was a death knell that probably raised cheers in hell. But was God's plan in jeopardy? Well, the answer is no, because it was God's plan. So let's look at the second genealogy of Jesus, Messiah, in the New Testament, and we find that in Luke 3, 23 to 38. So here was the solution, the genealogy of Mary. What? Yeah. The genealogy of Mary. Turn to Luke 3. Now, did you know, I think many of you do, Mary was also from King David's line. Let me remind us of what God promised back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. The Lord made this promise in Genesis 3.15. He said this to Satan, his arch enemy, and I will put enmity, hostility, Deadly hostility is the idea between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. That word in the Greek is sperma. And I don't have to go into a lot of detail, but the woman doesn't have seed. It's the man. But God predicted that it would be the seed of the woman that would bring about a deliverer. And what would that deliverer do? He... Her seed shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is what we call the protoevangelium. It's a Latin word that simply means it's the first gospel, first announcement of salvation. And before Adam and Eve ever were thrust out of the garden, God had predicted, I'm sending a deliverer, the seed of the woman. That's an announcement about the virgin birth. Now Luke's genealogy follows the line of David backwards from Mary all the way back to Adam. Verse 31 picks up another son of David. Let me get over there with you. Luke chapter 3. Look down at verse 31. Which was the son of Melee, which was the son of Menan, which was the son of uh, Metatha, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. Now, Nathan, that's the name we want to consider here. Nathan is also a son of David. doesn't mention Solomon here. It mentions Nathan. And it follows the genealogy through Nathan going back or going to Heli, look at verse 23, Heli. Jesus himself began at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Now, Matthew's gospel says that Jacob was Joseph's father, right? But Luke says it was Heli. The solution to this apparent discrepancy is simple. It's not a discrepancy at all. It was common in ancient genealogies for a son-in-law to be referred to as a son. Remember, they didn't mention women. 
to refer, be the son-in-law to be referred to and not the name of the daughter. Therefore, what Luke is doing is he's naming Heli, who was in fact Mary's dad. You see that? This was Mary's father. Again, from the line of David, but going all the way through, and now you know who Mary's father was. So the royal line of David through Jeconiah was not allowed to bring about Messiah. However, it must have frustrated the devil to see God continuing David's line through another son. A man named Nathan and a great-great-granddaughter uh, uh, named Mary who lived in Nazareth with her family. Again, do you see the grace of God? Even though the line of David rebelled and was cursed, the Lord already had planned for Messiah to be born in the line of David, circumventing his own curse. God knew exactly what he was doing. Now here's the miracle of grace. In the fullness of time, when Joseph and Mary rode into Bethlehem, to comply with Caesar Augustus's census, a man who himself, he thought himself to be God. <laughs> he orders a census that gets Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. And as they enter the city, who cares who even notices? A lot of people are coming to town. But both of these are royal descendants of King David. And in Mary's womb was the incarnate Son of God, God himself. I just want to pause for a moment. The Messiah has arrived in Bethlehem, the city where David was from. He is God, Savior of the world, who would provide salvation from sin through his own death. He would conquer death by his own resurrection. Uh, I, I wish we could have the Browns come back and just sing their song. That, that, those words were so rich with the miracle. Think about it, mothers, when Mary held that little baby's hand. That was the hand that had created the heavens. When she kissed the cheek, she kissed the cheek of God. This is marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. So let's close. The Christmas story has a backdrop of grace. The genealogies, if you read through your Bible, you get to these genealogies in places like Chronicles and here in the Gospels and you just kind of speed up and get through it. You know, what is that doing there? God's grace. And these genealogies outline God's determinate plan to save his people from their sin. And remember what the Lord told Abraham, through thy seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. We could take time to just talk about who is here this morning, your backgrounds. We no doubt have some Jews here, descendants of Abraham. 
And we've got many other people groups represented. You're looking at a man whose dad was a full-blooded German. Uh, they hear Asher and they think, are you Jewish? And I have to tell them, no, the C in that name makes it very German. And our German heritage is not a good one. But I stand here as proof that the God of heaven sent his son to die for me and he's my savior. And all of this that we've studied this morning affects us because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you received the gracious gift of God's son? I share with you this morning that there are a lot of backdrops. You're going to walk into places where you shop. You're going to hear music. And, and again, I'm not trying to be negative. I, I enjoy uh, over the river, through the woods. You know, I, I enjoy all that too. I love grandmother's house. <laughs> but the reality is that's not what really Christmas is about. It may be the backdrop of your past. And praise God for good memories. But what we're celebrating is God becoming man. Honestly, folks, the greatest act of humility anyone has ever, ever practiced. So have you received his gracious gift? If there was any other way, God didn't need to humble himself and become a man, but this was the only way. And the only way you're going to spend eternity in heaven, be delivered from your sin, and see the smiling face of Jesus is you're going to have to receive him yourself. Admit to him that you're lost, sinful, deserving of judgment, and believe that what Jesus did and his death on the cross, shedding his blood, rising again, that that took care of salvation and invite him into your life to be your savior. And he says, if you come to me, for no reason will I cast you out. Come to him today. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.